Good to see you guys. Okay, today we're looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 13, and chapter 10 to verse 20, which is the whole chapter. I'll read the text, pray, and then we'll begin. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 13. I've also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Chapter 10. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So, a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were, an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what it is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him. The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility, and your princes feast at the proper time. For strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof sinks in, and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts do not curse the king. Nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, who's sufficient for these things? Father, I pray that even in and through my wretchedness, you would speak to your people, Lord God. I pray that they would hear your voice, Lord God, and they wouldn't turn away from it, but they would rejoice in it. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. So we're in Ecclesiastes, which is a book that broadly asks what life is about. It's asking what's the point of life and it examines the pursuit of happiness. So up to where we are, the author's examined life and he's seen lots of pointlessness. I'd encourage you to listen to the previous sermons. In it, we find that we, we chase satisfaction. And as we chase satisfaction, satisfaction slips away. Things lose their novelty. Okay, and as things lose their novelty, they lose their satisfying ability. They lose, we lose satisfaction with them. Now, we're in chapter 9, verse 13. And we come to the point where we see to live a successful life, we can't just think about accumulating novelty or new things, excuse me. But we need to think about the application of wisdom. In order for a successful life, we need to think about the application of wisdom. So, let's look at the text. Straight away, we see a scenario that the, is really important to the author. He wants us to take note of this. We know that um, he wants us to take note of this because in verse 13, it says that this situation was great to him. Okay, he's seen something that's great to him. And what did he see? Okay. Now, this was most likely a real historical example. And what he saw was a situation, a city. Now, the city's a small and insignificant city, and we know that it's um, an insignificant city because in verse 14 it's called Little, and we know that there are few men in it. And a king comes to conquer the city, a great king, someone with resources, wealth, a big army, strength. Now, in our mind, we know how this plays out. There's a small insignificant city with few resources, uh, a ruler who can decimate the city, the city's finished. And yet, wisdom was found in that city. Okay, it says that there was a wise but poor, a, a poor but wise person, sorry, in verse 15, in the city. And by that person's wisdom, they saved the city. They saved the city. So, against all odds, against all um, principles that, you know, make sense to us, the city was saved. And what's the outcome of this? What's the outcome of this? Well, in verse 16, we see that the wise man, the strategist, the, the guy who understood and knew how to save the city, wasn't listened to. It says, in fact, that his wisdom was despised and he was not heard. Now, why wasn't this person regarded? Okay, this person saved the whole city. That's, that's a massive, massive feat. 
Well, the text tells us that the person was poor. So three times we see, or the man is referred to as poor. And I don't think it's strictly a reference to his monetary situation. Okay, it could, it could be any type of lack, really. And because of his poverty, his words, his wisdom uh, is not heeded. And this is something that's common amongst all of us. It's something that's common to man. We have a bias against things that are unappealing to us. So we think primarily in terms of form often, and um, we attribute legitimacy to the form of things at the expense of the context. So think about how we like to um, experience an, uh, someone saying something intellectual. If a professor with gray hair, glasses, wearing tweed, and probably male, was to give you a lecture on economics, let's say, you'd probably be more receptive if the person, than if the person was wearing a leather jacket, a hat to the side, um, so on and so forth. And again, if you know, there was a cool social commentator telling you about um, their ideas on current trends, what's coming up, um, what's fashionable, what's going on, you'll probably be more receptive to it than if your gran wanted to tell you what the, the latest trends are going to be. Again, I was um, speaking to Mel the other day and we were looking at the, um, the contenders for the Tory leadership. And as we were watching, I was like, nah, not you. Not you. Yeah, probably you. And we often, straight away, we can judge who's going to win. You know, just by looking at these people, even before they begin to say anything. You know, and even as they're, they're beginning to say things, you're like, nah. And appearances account for a lot, a lot more than they ought to. Now, kids do this. Now, if you're a child here in education, you've probably had a few lectures from your parents about what you should be doing, how you're not serious, you need to study more, you need to take more time out to, to focus on your work. Maybe it's a course of education. Actually, you know, this is not right for you. You need to really think about um, doing this because this is where your strengths lie. Don't you want to be a lawyer? Now, as pushy as parents can be, don't you think that they, they might be speaking from a place of wisdom? There may be some principles, some ideas, that, some thought that is grounded what they're saying. It hasn't just magically come out of their mouth. Also, your parents want the best for you. But why is it? Why is it that it's hard to hear what they're saying? Well, parents don't look like your friends. Yeah? It's true. Sorry, parents. You're just not cool. Okay? 
parents, parents don't get you, okay? And a lot of the, the reason why it seems like they don't get you is because they don't look like you, they don't talk like you, they don't dress like you, have different priorities. They've missed it. But could it be that you're missing it? Or spouses? Is it that your wife told you to go to bed early? You've got a cold and you're preaching on Sunday. And every time she said it, you didn't listen because you wanted to watch anime. What is it? What, why do we miss the weight of people's words? Now, children, or parents, rather, sorry, it's not exclusive to children. Sometimes, sometimes, as parents, we discount the words of our children. Why? Because they're little. Because they have little life experience as we see it. Sometimes they're trying to tell you something very important. Where does, this, where does this stem from? Where does this misapprehension stem from? Well, it stems from the garden, as Pastor Rob was talking about earlier today. It stems from Adam and Eve seeking their autonomy when they rebelled against God and decided that they wanted to be like God, able to weigh up good and bad. Okay. And the conclusion of this is that actually... We, we discern legitimacy with our eyes. And it leaves us in a bad situation. And so the, the author moves into a place where he concludes that wisdom is, is better than the showy things. So imagine we're going to war. And we have a general... Um, there's actually a couple of films that me and my friends quite liked, you know, they're um, the kind of male war films that rouse you up. And so one of them that we didn't like was um, King Arthur. And it failed in many places, but the pre-war speech was one of them. You know, the guy's riding along in his horse, and he was just, like, really timid, and <sighs> my friend was like, Wow. You know, like, you're probably going to die if you hear that. Like, because you, you're going to go into battle and, you know, there's not going to be any adrenaline pumping. But then you see things like um, 300, you know, um, or uh, <laughs> Troy and, or Gladiator. <laughs> so I had to throw that in there. <laughs> now, in, in, in 300... It's not so much a war speech, but it's a declaration of war. And a man basically kicks someone into the pit. And as he, as he kicks him in the pit, he's like basically saying, are you mad? You've come to conquer our country. This is Sparta! And you feel it in your bones, you know. Or when Brad Pitt is um, in Troy, you know, they're sailing up to the islands that, you know, they're going to conquer. And he says... Immortality is yours. Take it! And you're like, yes! Yes! 
or in Gladiator, strength and honor. Okay, I missed the whole speech bit out, but it ends on strength and honor. And you're like, yes. Like I had a, um, this is a little tidbit. I had a men's group when I was getting married and I had my groomsmen in it. And I was sending out all these messages and no one was getting back to me on, on the WhatsApp group. I changed the title of the WhatsApp group to Strength and Honor, and I put a picture of um, the title character from Gladiator in it. The group was popping off within seconds. <laughs> telling you, okay. But the author concludes that actually, the quiet words of the wise are better than the shouts of a ruler of fools. And so we're, we're left on a note in verse 18, which shows us the weakness of wisdom. Wisdom's, wisdom's the driving force. Wisdom's like the, the, the person in the car. Okay, you could, or the input for the car, now that we have driverless cars. You can have a driverless car, but if it has no input, no direction, it doesn't, it, it doesn't matter. You can have strength. If you don't know how to, to aim your strength, if you have no strategy, it doesn't matter. And yet, we see the weakness of wisdom. One, because people don't hear it. Two, because it's outweighed by sin. It's outweighed by folly, foolishness. And this is picked up in verse 1 of chapter 11. Sorry, chapter 10. Forgive me. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give up a stench. So, a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Okay, so, it's kind of like turning up to a banquet, a sumptuous feast, and literally everything you love is there. I don't know, some people, a feast would be burgers and chips. For some people, it's hot cuisine, it's, you know, five-star um, what do you call it, Michelin star food. But just imagine, as you get to the table, you know, aroma smelling nice, right in the center of the table, you just see just a, the smallest lump of feces. <laughs> Hands up if you're going to sit down and eat at that table. Yeah. That, that's, like, that's like folly, Okay. You can institute all the wisdom you want, but just a, just a small amount of folly is able to destroy that. Okay? And so, the author goes into a number of proverbs that illustrate this. And the, the Proverbs are quite miscellaneous. They're quite random in, in their composition and structure. And so I'm, I'm just going to touch on a few, but I will summarize them for you. Okay, so in verse 2, it looks at how the wise and the foolish part ways. And the wise and the foolish part ways. And this in your life might be your old friends. You know, those of you who are Christians, you might be mourning 
over the fact that actually a lot of the people he used to know and love actually you don't speak to so much anymore. But as the wise in Christ, as um, those who are wise, it's necessary sometimes that we part ways with people who we care about. It doesn't mean that we don't meet with them. It doesn't mean that we don't love them. It doesn't mean that we stop evangelizing. But it means that actually our lives and their lives are not compatible anymore. Or in verse 3, the obviousness of foolishness. Some people, there's some of you today in the congregation who just see a thing coming. You're like, oh, yeah, okay, stop crying. I knew this was going to happen. I've told you time and time again. I want to encourage you that, you know, you might, you might be wise. There's some people who don't listen to you. There's a lot of frustration in being able to see a thing outworking itself. Um, and yet, be encouraged that you may have a vantage point that other people don't have. Be patient with them. Be patient. Take your time with people. Teach people. In verse 4, it talks about the steadiness of wisdom. 5 to 7 talks about social stupidity, the misordering of society. Then it goes on to talk about the stupidity of malice. Verse 9, it talks about the stupidity of a lack of awareness. And verse 10 the stupidity of a lack of preparedness. Okay, and this is linked to verse 11. We'll come to that. Now, essentially, excuse me, let me get some tissue. Should have gone to bed earlier. <laughs> Amen, my brother. Okay. So the stupidity of a lack of preparedness. Often, we have goals and outcomes <coughs> that we desire to achieve, but we never think about how to go about that, how to secure and how to, to make sure that we get what we need. And essentially, we need to think about our goals and plan for our lives. Do you intend to get married? It might be good to start thinking about where you're going to live. It may be good to start thinking about what is the shape and focus of your life going to look like when you and your spouse are together? What are you aiming for? What, are your, what will be your goals together? It might be that you want to make it onto your school basketball team. What does that mean? Do you need to improve your fitness first? Then in 11, we have the stupidity of letting the moment pass. Now, there are times in which you have a limited window of opportunity, and then the thing is gone. I'm going to tell you the truth. My brother-in-law invented... Um, Bluetooth, a Bluetooth system anyway. And yeah, he, he allowed the moment to pass. It's true. He's shaking his head, it's true. He allowed the moment to pass and 
there was a limited window. There was a limited opportunity. Um, and then a thing is gone. And, and the same might be said for our example of marriage. So you might be planning to get married. There might be a particular person you want to speak to. A particular person who um, you're impressed with. And, you know, you want to court as a man. Okay, I'm speaking primarily to the males here, but <laughs> the, it, the point is broader. Now, at this point, you need to jump and pray that God will catch you. Okay? Whatever, it may, it <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm just saying, I'm just saying. You need to pray that God will catch you, okay? You need to make yourself vulnerable. However, you can do that if, going back to verse 10, you've prepared, you've planned, you've strategized. Verse 12 to 14, the stupidity of self-destruction. 15, the stupidity of being directionless. 16 to 17, the stupidity of hedonism nationally. 18, the stupidity of laziness. And 19, <coughs> I think I should address this, okay? It is the verse that says, bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything. Controversial. Now, I don't believe that the author's talking about covetousness here. I think the author's talking about a pragmatic materialism. And some people say, oh, um, that this is, take it as it is. What the author's saying is that money answers everything. But I believe that in the context of um, stupidity, basically, and folly, what he's saying is that an outlook that says money answers everything is short-sighted, okay? Money is, is practical for many things. But going back to what we learned at the start, actually, you need to implement wisdom, okay? You can't just throw money at a thing and expect it to get better, okay? You ne it needs to be strategic. So, there was a South American country who had a problem with rat infestation. And what they did was they said, okay, for every rat you kill or, you know, every quantity of rat, probably in some kind of mass you kill, we will give you um, X amount of pounds or whatever the currency was there. And they said the proof of this will be tails. You know, I imagine, you know, you don't want to dispose of all these rat bodies. So you get people to dispose of them for you, bring the tails, problem solved. What happened? Well, I'll tell you what happened. People brought the tails, cl claimed the money, got the rats to breed so that they could cut off more tails and go and get more money. So, you, could, you can throw money at a solution, but unless it's the right solution, then your money is worthless. Now, <coughs> we've been looking at the, I guess, all of these aspects of folly. 
And we see how others and ourselves fall into these areas. You know, there's probably not one area that doesn't cover most of us. Excuse me. But I want you to look at Mark chapter 6, verse 2 and 3. Mark chapter 6, verse 2 and 3. I'll read. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Now, this text is referring to Jesus as he speaks in the synagogue, and he's speaking wisdom. And people take offense at him. And I want to say that the real issue is not how we apply wisdom for success, but what we apply wisdom to. Now, Jesus is speaking to you. He speaks to each and every one of you today, and we don't listen. Often we fail to listen because Jesus is unappealing. We look at him through our lusts, and we feel like the bigoted people of someone who was dreamt up by the white man who died on a cross and is weak because he died as people insulted him on a cross in shame and failure. Even if we ourselves don't feel like that, even if we don't feel like Jesus is weak, we feel like how can we hold out the cross as hope to a world that would never consider it as a sign of strength. Are you listening to Jesus or do you despise his wisdom because he's poor, because he lacks what it is that appeals to you? Now, we not only do we not listen to Jesus, we don't afford to him his status as wisdom. Why? A lot of us are angry with Jesus. There are a lot of us here today that are really angry with Jesus. A lot of us are sick. Or our lives have gone in ways that we don't want them to. And we're angry. And so we don't listen to Jesus because... He's got it wrong. God has got it wrong. And we don't attribute to him the status that he deserves. Ruler, God, sovereign. He's unappealing. But 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, paints a very different picture of who Jesus is. From verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. 
Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God. Through wisdom, it pleased God, through the folly of what we preach, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Jesus is Jesus is God's wisdom is our power. And and how do we see that manifested? We see that manifested in the cross. We see that in Jesus' death, his crucifixion. And that's our righteousness, the text goes on to say. It's our righteousness. Some of you are angry with God. Some of you have had hateful feelings towards God because of the situations you find yourself in. I want to encourage you today that what God has done for you is infinitely bigger than anything you've done against him. What God has done for you is bigger than what you have done against him. So, what does this mean as as we move forward? Well, it means that Christ is not only our righteousness and our salvation, but he's also the pattern of righteousness and salvation, which means that, as Jesus said, we pick up our cross and we die daily. We, Jesus said that those who would follow after him must pick up their cross because in order to save your life, you must lose it. So I want to ask you, I want to challenge you today, in what ways have you recognized the Christian life as a road of death, a road of dying, what, what things have you sacrificed and put down? What parts of your life? Denzel challenged us today and he said, who were you before you were saved? Who are you now? What's the difference between you when, before you were saved and now? What things, what wisdom of the world are you holding on to? We must die too. Now, I've been reading, or rather listening to a series of books that talk about power struggles. A bunch of rulers all fighting to be the ruler, to have complete power. And the theme of the books is essentially that, people struggling and fighting over power. But when I reflected on the books, I thought it might be more apt to consider it a series of stories of how people die. A series of stories of how people die, and this is where we are at. This is where we've come to. In your life, in the story of your death, because we all die, how will you die? 
How will you die? How are you dying? How are you dying daily? And what would that mean for when you meet your maker? Let's pray. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.